0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In this series of talks, I'd like to continue to introduce uh, significant philosophical figures that would pertain to theology. So we've talked extensively about Rene Girard. And the next figure that I'd like to introduce is uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein, there's very little about him that is not controversial. My own encounter with Wittgenstein uh, occurred in Japan, and in particular in conjunction with a Japanese philosopher and interpreter who had uh, translated Wittgenstein's diaries into Japanese, and so was intimately acquainted with the diaries and introduced me to the diaries that in fact, as I understand, have only been available some 15 years. Uh, A a lot of Wittgenstein scholarship has been done in the absence of the insight that the diaries that I guess were in the somebody's attic. And in particular, of course, is Wittgenstein's relationship to Christianity. What he is carrying out, then, is very much in conjunction with his discovery during World War One with Tolstoy's Life of Christ, and that Wittgenstein, would consider himself a kind of Tolstoyan Christian or follower of Christ in the sense that he would, many of the moves, you know, this is even as early as McClendon, James McClendon in Witness describes the unfolding of Wittgenstein's life uh, in his attempting to give his wealth away. In his uh, continual confessing of his various wrongdoings, what he would say uh, at, about his time up in Norway that he was praying, which his friends were shocked that that was his understanding of what he was doing. and then also in the diaries that what what is filled in there is that Wittgenstein is personally struggling with the uh, Belief in the resurrection. I don't necessarily want to retell the biography, but to recognize that inasmuch as all of this pertains directly to a particular theological understanding, maybe a very Tolstoyan notion of an enacted ethic, of a Harwasian notion of a practical Christianity, and Harwas will attribute his own understanding, then, to a reading of Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein himself, then, is aware that what he is doing philosophically has a theological impact, and maybe that's why he never felt comfortable joining any. Christian church or group, because what he understood about Christianity, he saw as, in fact, that which had been missed within the organized religion that he was familiar with. We might reduce uh, or, or sum up what he's doing, that His whole philosophical method is over and against the attempt to, in some way, transcend the body by constructing some grand metaphysical theory. It's over and against the idea of a denial of the embodied nature of the soul. It's over and against the understanding of language, which would, in some way, picture language as floating free of the bodily nature of meaning. It's over and against an epistemology that would separate the mind from the world. And so there is a situatedness in the very use of language that Wittgenstein sees as as a necessity. That in You know, this is Fergus Kerr's picture in theology after Wittgenstein. The significance, then, is a complete repudiation of a Christianity that would picture souls disembodied and going to heaven as the point of Christianity. Wittgenstein writes, we must do away with all explanation and description alone must take its place. Philosophy simply puts everything before us and neither explains nor deduces anything. So he's giving us a philosophy with a very different purpose. He's rebelling against the traditional conception of philosophy as setting forth a grand theory. He's relentlessly relentlessly attacking this notion of philosophy. Now, what I'm not addressing here and don't necessarily want to enter into the controversy is the degree to which the Tractatus and the philosophical investigations are both involved in this. That there does seem to be a continuity in a kind of, uh, uh, certainly there is a difference, but there's also a continuity in this philosophical revisionism. So rather than viewing philosophy as a kind of metaphysical explanation, theory building, Wittgenstein views it as a kind of there, an overcoming of philosophical dis- uh, confusion. And maybe this is the proper way to get it, that at the end of the day, reading Wittgenstein, is simply a cure for the notion that language can in some way ascend to the heavens in and of itself. Wittgenstein wants his readers to get beyond the kind of illusory theories, the meaningless metaphysical language. That is that there there is always the temp, attempt through philosophical language to escape language. So language should not attempt to get outside of itself by becoming what it is in fact not. One of the places that Wittgenstein turns is Augustine's picture of uh, learning language. As a child, Augustine writes, Whenever grown-ups referred to something by name and in mentioning the name made some gesture towards the object in question, I took a firm hold of it with my memory. I would listen to the words and immediately I would work out from their position in different sentences what they meant. And as soon as I had learnt to get my tongue around them, I began to string them them together in sentences of my own in order to convey my own desires. What Wittgenstein is objecting to in uh, this Augustinian understanding is the notion that the little child comes fully delivered with a private language or a private understanding as if he had his own name for things and learning language was simply a translation from his language into the language of his parents or the adults surrounding him and of course a lot of this begins to sound like noam chomsky's picture of the way in which a child acquires language that chomsky Presents the twofold necessity that the child does indeed have to have a grammatical capacity. But this grammatical capacity, this innate grammar, we might say, is not activated apart from being in, in a particular context or a particular association with language users. So intertwined with Wittgenstein's understanding of philosophy is the the consistent notion of a direct relationship between the mind and the body, between the language of the mind as necessarily encompassing embodiment. He rejects any philosophy that attempts to separate the thinking subject from his own body and, of course, thinking here of a kind of Cartesian dualism. He's fighting this, uh, what is the majority tradition in Western philosophy, in its distinction, a kind of two-substance theory of reality. Uh, For Wittgenstein, the ground for a person's knowledge are not interior, but uh, I have tried to convince you, he writes, of just the opposite of Descartes' emphasis on I, and what I, interior I, I. We could actually take this back to a very earlier uh, time. Descartes, though we put him at the head of modernity, there is a turn to grammar, and he's he himself is a part of that understanding, in which there is an understanding that human interiority, and we see this very much in Anselm of Canterbury, in some way is a kind of world unto itself. Wittgenstein is arguing that the mind is inextricably intertwined with the body, that the human interiority is bound up with the public, the physical. Of course, this is not just uh, of having philosophical implications but psychoanalytic implications that the way that you come to a deep interiority of a person their true you know nature is not simply through uh, their own thoughts or the pattern of their own understanding what is contained within the individual is not the explanation of the individual Wittgenstein says nothing is more wrong headed than calling meaning a mental activity Language has made available to humanity a diversity of expressions that aim, enable us to think in various subtle, nuanced ways. That we've received this language, though, we have not been born with it. We have come to recognize the world on the basis of language, so that it is not an outside-inside split by means of language, but that there is a continuity between the interior and the the exterior. So for Wittgenstein, knowledge does not begin with consciousness. Uh, Really, it doesn't begin with anything. Rather, knowledge is rooted in a person's form of life. A shared context is the idea. And it's in the shared form of life within which he knows, and he knows what he knows. That is, this is the ground of his epistemology. So the subject should not view himself as an isolated ego separated from the world, though this is in fact a game that he might play and of course this is the founding of an entire epic. Wittgenstein says only a god could view the world from above. The form of expression we use seems to have in some way been designed for a god who knows what he cannot know. He sees the whole of each of those infinite series and he sees into human consciousness. That is, we kind of deify ourselves. We would extract ourselves from our finitude. We lack this power. We we do not have these vestments of meaning, he says, in the philosophical investigations. And it's interesting that he uses he, he's specifically talking about this in terms of a religious understanding that we would in some way displace God in our philosophical understanding, but it may be just in our understanding of who we are. So Wittgenstein is not saying that the subject lacks a world to represent rather he's saying that a person including his language and form of life is inextricably intertwined with that world we can't step back from the world and describe reality from an objective position outside of that reality so thus in knowledge as in language, psychology, philosophical method, he's uh, affirming the embodied nature of human thought and human action. And you could do a a counter kind of understanding here as he does with uh, Augustine. Somebody like B.F. Skinner uh, writing in a contemporary period uh, posits the notion of a primitive language, very similar to a private language. That is, that uh, if you found a primitive people, uh, what would you find? You would find a kind of simplistic vocabulary. And of course, all of this has been proven not to be the case. And so I see Noam Chomsky as, in in a way, uh, affirming and supporting what you get in Wittgenstein. Chomsky's notion that language can't have simply evolved as a form of grunts. That in some way, the language requires the innate grammar, what he will refer to as the black box, uh, that is a kind of mystery that Chomsky himself says, well, you're just born with this. And apart from this, literally, you know, apart from having the grammar available, and of course the idea of a universal grammar, then a child could not learn language. But with Wittgenstein, you know even prior to Wittgenstein, we could trace that there is a turn to language in Friedrich Nietzsche and uh, also, you know, Martin Heidegger's talk of the dwelling in the house of language. And so there is a new awareness, but Wittgenstein is coming at this from a, you know, in a, a very different tradition and the, the continental tradition. Part of the the problem that uh, Wittgenstein's, and he complained about this, you know, the logical positivists who really took their imagining that they're meeting in the name of Wittgenstein, they invite him to their meetings, their notion that, you know, that they won't believe anything that cannot be verified. And, and of course, Wittgenstein said they, they, they've completely misunderstood. And maybe there's a whole tradition of people who uh, are attracted to the Tractatus and reject the philosophical investigations, like Bertrand Russell himself, who was very impressed with early Wittgenstein, thought the young Wittgenstein was a true genius. But by the time we get to the philosophical investigations, Russell said, well, the genius proved not to be such a genius after all. But, of course, the problem is that Wittgenstein is in some way gone beyond the analytic tradition, the uh, British philosophical tradition. Though he's working within that tradition, he exceeds the boundaries in, in many ways. It may be that his final work, which is posthumous, Uncertainty, uh, gets at this most clearly. Slavoj Žižek actually pictures uncertainty as the third phase, you know, there's the Tractatus, the philosophical investigations, and then uncertainty. I think that could be argued in any number of ways, but the point is that Wittgenstein is not rejecting certainty he's just grounding it in a very different way the parallels to this you know in philosophy of science would be Thomas Kuhn's uh, the structure of scientific revolutions that is picturing science as occurring in and through paradigms theories uh, Michael Polanyi's personal knowledge that pictures knowledge as necessarily that of persons Martin Heidegger's picture of the house of language or the rise of the notion of of a, a world view. And so modern from philosophy from Descartes to, to Kant will locate the human self in a kind of separate realm, a disembodied ego as in Descartes, a kind of missing, dismantled self in the case of Hume or the transcendental I in the case of Kant. And this is the tradition that Wittgenstein is resisting. Descartes looks for certainty within himself and presumes that he will hit upon this certainly in the essence of the I, which is very much on parallel to a kind of mathematical understanding. And he'll pit this then against the truths of religion, which he says are revealed truths that are inaccessible to our intelligence. So there is knowledge, which is completely accessible and grounded in the self, and then there is the revelation of faith that is an alternative to that in Cartesian understandings. You know, this is the whole point of Descartes' meditations. He wants the mechanical arts, mathematics, a kind of machinery to serve as a, a more noble purpose in philosophy. Think here of Descartes' picture of the soul and the body, he says, are entirely distinct. He pictures the being able to take a dead animal's eye and being able to insert it in his socket, that is, it's the machinery of the body, is simply an apparatus for the soul to employ. The soul is completely independent of the outside world, and mind is distinct from and its superior to matter. So Witt- Wittgenstein uses this, Des- Descartes' picture of seeing. He points out that the form of the visual field cannot include the seeing eye itself. In like manner, the metaphysical subject, he says, is not part of the world, but shrinks to a point without extension. That is, that the very metaphor that Descartes is employing would count himself out. Richard Rorty calls it an obsession with this image of something deeply hidden, this attempt to avoid relatedness, to think a single thought, which is not simply a node in a web of other thoughts to speak a word which has meaning even though it has no place in a social practice. That, he says, is the urge to find a place which, if not above the heavens, is at least beyond chatter, to in some way use language and thought to escape the world. So the letter writings of Wittgenstein are very much aware of this corporate, this communal understanding. How he can a transcendental self if you think in terms of theology or scripture, become a doer of the word and not a hearer only to think of James one twenty-two, Ordinary language, he says, consistently brings the words I and my into relation with a particular human body one's own body. He says, be careful not to think these these are considerations that show that besides A's body there is something else, another object, which is A. You must refrain from looking for a, a substance when you see a substitute but not from thoroughly examining, examining the use of a word. He uses the example, you know, we do not say my body has a toothache. I have a toothache. The eye is itself in an embodied world. Words no longer make up propositions that picture the world, rather words are part of the world. They come together in actions and activities, what he calls language games, constitutive of practices that comprise the human world. No human game can be understood apart from the forms of life, of uh, building, shopping, playing, fighting. These are, make sense, they're constituted as part of a world. Is thinking here of G.E. Moore, who he's rather d- denigrative of, uh, of. He says that someone who asks such a question as G Moore holds up his hand and, and doubts that this is his own hand. He says someone who asks such a question is overlooking the fact that a doubt about existence only works in a language game. Hence that we should first have to ask, what would such a doubt be like? This is uncertainty, and and of course he's saying, well, you can do that, you can play that game, but it is a game that's already dependent on a web of meaning that's present to you in language. All testing, all confirmation and disconfirmation of a hypothesis, he says, takes place already within a system, and this system is not a more or less arbitrary and doubtful point of departure for all our arguments. No, it belongs to the essence of what we call an argument. The system is not such so much the point of departure as the element in which arguments have their life. So we do not learn the practice of making imp- empirical judgments by learning rules, we are taught judgments, he says, and their connection with other judgments. There's a totality of judgments, and these then make things plausible or not plausible to us. When we first begin to believe anything, we don't believe a single proposition, but we re- we believe a whole system of proposition. Very similar then to a a kind of paradigmatic understanding, as in a Kuhnian picture of the way that science works. Wittgenstein says, It's not single axioms that strike me as obvious. It is a system in which consequences and premises give one another mutual support. I'm quoting here from Uncertainty. The child learns to believe a host of things. It learns to act According to these beliefs, bit by bit, there forms a system of what is believed, and in that system, some things stand unshakably fast, and some are more or less liable to shift. What stands fast does so, not because it is intrinsically obvious or convincing. It is rather held fast by what lies around it. That is, that there is no singular axiom, no isolated I no essence of a word that one could arrive at. So he says, why do I not satisfy myself that I have two feet when I get up from a chair? There is no why, I simply don't. This is how I act. My judgments themselves characterize the way I judge, characterize the nature of judgment. How does someone judge which is his right and which is his left? How do I know that my judgment will agree with someone else's? how do I know that this color is blue? If I don't trust myself here, why should I trust anyone else's judgment? Is there a why? Must I not begin to trust somewhere? Think here of Hebrews chapter 11, that the foundation of certainty is faith. Must I not begin to trust somewhere? That is to say, somewhere I must begin with not doubting. The Cartesian system was built upon systemic doubt, that I will doubt everything except that which cannot be doubted. Wittgenstein is dismantling that, that it is a kind of fool's errand. I do not explicitly learn that the propositions that stand fast for me I can discover them co- subsequently like the axis around which a body rotates. This axis is not fixed in the sense that anything holds it fast, but the movement around it determines its immobility. That no one, he says, ever taught me that my hands don't disappear when I'm not paying attention to them. Nor can I said to be to presuppose the truth of this proposition in my assertion uh, as if they rested on it. Only gets from the rest of our procedure of asserting. That is that what G.E. Moore is doing, what Descartes is doing, in doubting. Descartes begins, I can doubt that I'm in this room. Maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe I'm being deceived by a demon. There would be... Uh, you can play that game, but the ge- basis upon which you're playing that game is a presupposition, are pro- uh, is themselves a, a part of a web of meaning. What would it be like to doubt now whether I have two hands? Why can't I imagine it at all? What would I believe if I did believe that? So far as I have no system at all within this, which this doubt might exist. That is, the doubt is already partaking of a belief an understanding. I have ro- arrived at the rock bottom of my convictions, and one might also say that these foundation walls are carried by the house. So this is over and against a Cartesian foundationalism, the kind of foundationalism that you get in modernity, The the foundation then is not one that one can lay himself. My having two hands is, in normal circumstances, as certain as anything that I could produce in evidence for it. That is why I'm not in a position to take the sight of my hand as evidence for it. He uh, plays the role that maybe if someone said that he doubted the existence of his hands, Kept looking at them, tried to make sure it wasn't all done with mirrors. Do we call that doubting? He says we might describe his way of behaving like the behavior is doubt. His game would not be ours. If someone said to me that he doubted whether he had a body, I should take him to be a half But I shouldn't know what it would mean to try to convince him that he had one. And if I had said something, and that had removed his doubt, I should not know how or why. So the conclusion here, the strange thing is that when I am quite certain of how the words of used, have no doubt about it, I can still give no grounds for my way of going on. If I tried, I could give a thousand, but none as certain as the very things they were supposed to be grounds for. The, the Kantian project, the Cartesian project, the project of mo- modernity, posing the question, you know, examining the question, how is knowledge possible? Descartes' picture a dis- discourse on the method of rightly conducting reason and reaching the truth in sciences. There is the, the notion that in some way we can get at the bottom of knowing, and of course lay the foundation ourselves. There is a rejection of a kind of, of belief in anything. You know, this is the Cartesian that I'll tear down the foundations and begin again. That's what's rejected, and that's in, in a theological understanding with somebody like Stanley Harwis. This is the understanding that he's de- deploying. Harwis is able to do ethics precisely because he has been enabled to think through Wittgenstein by means of the particular language of Christianity. He's been able to comprehend what he would call a practical Christianity. Harwis says, Wittgenstein slowly cured me of the notion that philosophy was primarily a matter of positions, ideas, and or theories. Rejecting such temptations to be a system builder, he says, freed me to get back to the rough ground, to be a teacher of the Christian language a therapist for theological problems. Christian discourse, Christian theology is embedded in Christian practice. Understanding words such as sanctification, justification, comes from understanding the Christian life as a whole and not from translating such terms into neutral philosophical problems. As uh, Cartwright says for Harwas, the interpretive enterprise of reading scripture is always located in the web of ecclesial practices, skills, and gestures, such that the Church is the irreplaceable locus of authority for reading Scripture. This is Harwis's take on something like the Ten Commandments that, apart from the life of the Jews, apart from even the first note, you know, commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, these commandments only make sense in the form of life that is given in the history of the Jews being delivered from Egypt. So the body, in this understanding, the environment reveals the soul rather than concealing it. The public expresses the private, rather than obstructing it. There is no private experience that can be separated from bodily and linguistic factors. Language is continuous with experience. Language gives one the categories with which to experience experience. Harwis writes, Wittgenstein helped me see that mind did not relate to body as a cause to effect. For mind was not a singular thing or function. Wittgenstein ended forever any attempt on my part to try to anchor theology in some general account of human experience. For his writings taught me that the object of the theological, of the theologian's work, was best located in terms of the grammar of the language used by believers. So we can get rid of, through Wittgenstein, how it was, such notions of as Fideism, relativism, scepticism, and we can build what he calls a non foundational Christian realism. Wittgenstein is helpful for retrieving a biblically and traditionally Christian view of church and community. In short, Howarth finds Wittgenstein's central insights, even in regard to evangelism, as resonant with an entire body of Christian theology. Even Fergus Kerr then does a, a similar thing in his theology after Wittgenstein, that he notes that this has ramifications for all of theology. Following which Wittgenstein, he says, one might be able to root the doctrine of the atonement in brute facts about the internal dynamics of any community, to such an end that one can say that Jesus was scape willingly to preserve the community. But in the aftermath of the execution, the cycle was apparently broken. The sin of his tormentors did not fall in turn upon them. The Wittgensteinian rejection of anthropological dualisms then lend support to a catholic christian a universal christian teaching on uh, an understanding of atonement that re- that is grounded in the community that is salvific in terms that has impl- immediate implications for the community brad Kallenberg is an example of maybe of, of one who presses Wittgenstein into full service. He talks about modernist reductionism has hurt the church's ability to be faithful in evangelism and discipleship. He thinks that we've been tempted to reduce the church to atomized individuals. He says the evangelistic task of Christians is to naturalize new believers into the new community, uh, which will in turn change their social identity the new believer will be transformed in his thinking and living. So what you get throughout is a kind of holistic understanding, a departure from reductionism, a departure from the modernist paradigm in which conversion is a kind of cognitive ascent of isolated propositions, you know, doctrinal statements. Language in this understanding is communal. Learning a language, a theological language, a biblical language, is an irreducibly social enterprise that trains a person into a communal mode of living. And so as we're inducted into the form of life that is the church, that is the mode of salvation. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved. Or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.